Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. In this week's episode, I chat with Cameron Higgins, founder of Resonate. Resonate is out to change the face of mental health care by mapping and triggering our symphony of brainwaves. Sound far-fetched? Have a listen and Cameron's drive and experiences might just change your mind. We speak about mental health versus mental illness, Cameron's neuroscience research at Oxford, his life-leading disaster response for the UN, how both led to founding Resonate, and the drive to tackle a crisis of mental health care. Please enjoy my discussion with Cameron Higgins. Today on the show, we welcome Cameron Higgins, founder of Resonate. Resonate is developing a new wearable medical device for treating depression. Cameron, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me on the program. Wonderful to have you on the show. Cameron, I've browsed through your LinkedIn profile, and I have to say, I've never come across anybody who's had a background like yours in any way, shape, or form. So you spent a good long period of time working in the UN in various disaster response roles across the globe, and then have gone on to complete a PhD at Oxford. So my first question to you is, how would you best describe yourself and what you do and what you're trying to do with Resonate? Yeah, okay. That has been a pretty fun career path for me so far, a pretty diverse one as well. I've always been somebody who's driven by impact more than anything else, more than a particular domain or area of specialization. It's been the desire to do something that's going to actually make a difference and be significant. And so that's what drove me into firstly working with the UN and doing quite a bit of really important, meaningful work with them. At some point, I'd reached, I guess, a point where I decided that it was time to go back and do something more academic and take up an offer to pursue a PhD, which was, again, something where I was there focused on really how I could use some of the skills that I have to the best possible use. I guess that path down through doing a PhD and then through academia has brought me to my current position where with Resonate, I'm really trying to create a device that can help people to change the way they think. So a device that can support people through the pathway from some kind of mental health illness back to recovery. Because I think all of my own research and understanding about how the brain works and the technology that we have available at the moment has provided that there's a real unique opportunity here to do that. That's a very great introduction. Thank you. Let's talk more about this transition that you've had from academic research into founding Resonate and the meaning, the purpose, the impact behind that. The space that you're playing in is in mental health, and you've got a strong research background in that. So to begin with, let's talk about mental health itself. How would you define mental health and mental well-being? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And to be honest, there's a few different ways that I would define it. So I think there's a commonplace understanding of mental health 
which really focuses on the health side of mental health. I guess I'd picture it as this giant Venn diagram of overlapping things that we understand in some intangible way to support our general well-being. So things like our thinking habits, our overall satisfaction with life, our job, our ability to focus on things, all of these different facets of good mental health and it's the overlap in the middle when all of these are working right and in the place that we want them to be that we would say it's a good state of mental health. In contrast to that, when I speak to mental health professionals, people who actually deal more with mental illness, I think mental illness is something quite different because it's far more categorized and classified where there are specific breakdowns. And it's related to mental health, obviously, that picture that I've said with all of these overlapping things, but they break down in quite specific ways in different people. There is that distinction. I think a lot of us talk about throwaway lines with mental health when people say that their mental health may have been struggling a bit lately because they haven't had a holiday. That means something very different to when you speak to a psychiatrist about the mental health of their patients. And so in my mind, I categorize those two things quite distinctly the pathway back from mental illness to good mental health. They're related things, but they sit in very different places. Now, you're not a practicing psychologist, but you do have a PhD in this space. So talk us through the topics of your PhD and your postdoc research at Oxford. Yeah, so I should just clarify, I started off as an engineer, and then I did a PhD in neuroscience. So Whilst I can talk about mental health now, I'm not actually trained in mental health and that hasn't been the focus of my research. It was more about how to really use engineering techniques to better understand the brain. So over the course of my PhD, I developed methods really for measuring different networks in the brain. And this is something that's actually quite recent in terms of what we've come to understand about neuroscience is that when you look at the brain, parts of the brain don't activate in isolation. They activate together in really meaningful ways. A lot of my research was about trying to really map out which parts of the brain co-activate and what it means when you have these regions co-activating together. So specifically, I came to look at a widely studied network called the default mode network, but it's basically what I was able to show was the role that that played in memory. And I think it's quite an interesting thing that this was a network that was originally thought to be when somebody's just staring out the window and pretty vacant minded. But what we've come to understand is that there's actually a whole lot going on during those periods. And one of those things is memory consolidation. So your brain uses these moments when you may not be consciously focused on what's in front of you, your brain seizes on that opportunity to try to solidify recent memories. So there's this pattern in your cognition where cycles, if you will, where there's moments where you're focused and processing the information that's in front of you. And there's moments when you're gazing out the window, but there's still a whole lot going on in the background in that moment in time. Yeah, fascinating. It's a really interesting transition to go from engineering into neuroscience. 
from first assumptions. That's not a leap that many would make, I would imagine. But looking at the balance between your engineering background and understanding versus the neuroscience academia side of things, one thing that comes to mind when I think about engineers is the hard stuff, the physical outcomes that an engineer creates in contrast to what I assume when I hear the word academia. Taking those two extremes, are there any relevant outcomes that your research has directly contributed to? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, firstly. Like you say, in academia, the general pursuit of knowledge in some vague way, and then engineers come in that are very kind of process and outcome driven. I might just add, I happen to work in a lab that had this great mix of engineers and traditional neuroscientists. And I think it's when you get that mix probably more than anything, clash of cultures and clash of ways of analysing the problem, that things bounce backwards and forwards and you iterate through getting the best of both worlds. So you wind up with something that is a much more tangible, concrete outcome driven by the engineers, but way more useful because the direction has been set by the neuroscientists. Your question about relevant outcomes that my research has contributed to That's mainly the reason why I've started up Resonate. Um, There have been a whole lot of further research experiments that have come from my work. But one of the things that I think it's not to be critical of academia, but when you publish a paper, uh, it doesn't mean that somebody else picks it up and decides to translate it. You know better than anybody the complexities that's in there and you are the best person place to take that and translate it. I'm hoping to get that tangible outcome now through my work with Resonate. Excellent. We'll dive into Resonate in a little bit more detail a little bit later on. But just to flesh out your personal profile, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your time at the UN as well as how you came to focus on mental health. So talk us through what you did at the UN. First of all, obviously, there were your motivations of getting into a role that you could have some impact. But why pick the UN to begin with? And what was your experience like working there? Yeah, I had a fantastic journey through the UN. I started off as a volunteer. This was through an Australian government organized volunteering program. I guess it comes back to How can you best use your skills? So somehow I came across this volunteering opportunity, which was for a software developer to work on developing a disaster preparedness software program for the UN. I thought that was a great way to use my skills for something quite meaningful. I started off as a volunteer, but then I rapidly went through a series of projects finishing off this software program, but then uh, across a whole range of other projects. Some of them were software related, but most of them actually weren't. And it was all focused on disaster preparedness in the early days. So for a few years, all of my work was focused on how do we as the World Food Program, which is one of the UN agencies, and how does the World Food Program prepare for the major crises that happen in the world? Because we know that if you are ready to respond when disaster strikes and every second counts, any time spent on preparation pays off big time thereafter. My early days were spent in disaster preparedness, and then I moved more into disaster response. 
You go into the really high stakes, high profile emergencies. I worked in the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan, in Nepal after the earthquakes in 2015, as well as in Liberia after the Ebola crisis, trying to ultimately stem the spread of Ebola across West Africa, just to name a few. And that's the kind of roles where you land somewhere and in every case it's a completely different scenario, completely different emergency, completely different needs. But the common thing is that you have very little information, but you have to scale up a program massively and come up with a plan with very little information and knowledge about the specifics of the country and how to do that. So yeah, those were my roles. And it was also the the nature of those emergency roles. I think that whether you would call it burnout, I think people don't spend their whole career working in those kind of emergencies. You can do it for a little while. And eventually I decided it was time to move on to academia. And that is a great setup for my next question, actually, which was Thinking back to all of these multiple crises that you just had to parachute yourself into and handle all of these worst case scenarios, as you mentioned, how did you look after your own personal well-being and mental health during these times? Good question. Mostly after three or four months down the line with the reckoning. Emergencies are tough and you're working around the clock. I think your mental health does definitely suffer but there's very little time to really deal with that and process it. It should be said that it's one of the things that I found really interesting is our capacity to adjust and adapt to different scenarios. I was always amazed that you'd land somewhere and the first day everything would be foreign and shocking in terms of the scenario and what you were seeing. But then the next day... It's almost as if it's quite normal. You no longer look twice at the things that are going on. But I think whilst it feels that way on a day-to-day basis, under the surface, these things kind of grind you down. Within the emergency management team, a very big part of the role was just identifying when people were at risk of burnout and cycling them through. So I don't think there was a very proactive approach to what we would talk about as mental health, but it was nonetheless something that was really recognised as critical to having these teams actually function well. And so addressed in that way, which is probably a secondary way of dealing with it rather than head-on proactive approaches, which would be very difficult in these kinds of environments. Yeah, makes absolute sense. So as you were reaching the end of your time with the UN and feeling that burnout that you spoke of, what made you pick academia and neuroscience as opposed to, uh, I'm burnt out, I need a bit of a break, let me take a cushy job somewhere else and chill out for a little bit? Academia was my cushy job to chill out for a bit, to be honest. No, it was, I guess, what academia offers you I was somebody who chose a PhD as a, I remember describing it as a sort of self-indulgent move where you could go and just pick a question that you found interesting that you thought was important and just dig deeper and deeper into it for a period of time. So, you know, in that sense, it was probably in many ways a reaction to the UN work that on the ground, it's very hard work. 
it's not particularly intellectually stimulating. There's a whole lot of stuff to do when you're frantically running around. It was the reaction to that that I chose almost the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Where can I find an academic pursuit that I just find really stimulating and interesting and devote seemingly endless amounts of time to just dig into it and really answer it? That's really great to hear. So now we have a better understanding of who you are, where you've come from, what your motivations are. Let's talk a little bit more about the company that you founded. Let's talk more about Resonate. To begin with, how did you pick the name Resonate? What's the story behind that? Yeah, it ties into what exactly I'm trying to do with Resonate, which I think I mentioned at the start, building a medical device that is helping people to change the way they think. And it's doing that through actually monitoring the brain patterns that are linked to healthy thinking habits and trying to support people to move back towards those. The vision that I have for these devices is something that's really listening in to the kind of the brainwave symphony that's coming out. It might sound funny to people who haven't actually looked at or understood what brain waves are, but you get all these different signals at different frequencies, which you can kind of think of as an orchestra, right? You've got alpha waves going off here and beta waves going off there. And what this device is really trying to do is listen into that and tap into it and be able to provide feedback that accentuates certain parts of that and inhibits other parts. So that's the idea behind Resonate. The name is that we're really trying to get a device that finds healthy thinking habits in that symphony of brainwaves and really resonate with that and accentuate those healthy habits. All right. Fantastic. I've made use of mental health services in the past, and obviously I will have my own opinions on my experience of that time. But I'm curious what you see as the main problem with mental health care as it is. Look, in one word right now, access. How do people actually access the services that they need? Because there is this huge infrastructure for mental health, and there's a lot of really dedicated professionals who are brilliant at helping people along that journey. But right now in Australia, the last survey by the Australian Psychological Society identified that 54% of psychology clinics have either closed their books to new clients or they have waiting times more than three months long. So this is really a crisis where people can't get access to psychology. And there's a lot of reasons behind it. One is just that the demand over the past 15 years has outpaced the supply. And that's became quite dramatically the case over the pandemic, but it was still very much the case before then. So what you see now is that people, by the time they go to see a GP and actually ask for help, they've normally been actually in need of help for some time already. And then they're getting a referral that's in some cases effectively useless, right? So People who are in this kind of vulnerable situation, many of them will only reach out once. And if the system gives them the runaround where they have to make several different phone calls and everybody says, sorry, we're full, many people just won't reach out again. And I think that's a real 
tragedy in terms of the system, that this is the system that's there to help people in crisis and in some cases it's pushing them away. So it's a kind of systemic issue. We have the tools, we have the people that can support them, but they're just not able to link up. As a creator, a producer of medical wearable devices, how are you planning on bridging that gap? What's the high-level description of how you're approaching this issue with your solution? Right. So we're focusing on how you can complement a course of psychology in a way that enables psychologists to scale up their practice. The way I really see the devices that we're building is that they are a kind of automated complement to what psychologists try to instill in their patients. When people go through cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the main goals is instilling in those people an awareness of how their thoughts lead to behaviors and how those behaviors lead to their overall outcomes. Now, what our device is trying to do is to help them become aware of those habits and to change them. So how we see this working is that when people have a device in addition to being enrolled in a course of care with a psychologist, firstly, we think that that will mean that they don't have to see the psychologists as frequently. So instead, the standard model where somebody goes and sees a psychologist once a week, we think we could space that out to once a fortnight if people take this device home and they're using it over that intervening period. There's also a lot of time that psychologists spend in their sessions doing things that could be automated, okay? So doing things like assessments. One of the things that psychologists find difficult is that somebody comes in and they need to, at the start of the session, quickly gauge how they're actually going. And with subjective things like depression that have this real kind of emotional component, often they just get a snapshot of how they're feeling on that day. And despite the questions that they're asking, may not be the best representation of how they've been over the intervening period. So psychologists would like to see this kind of data, something that's tracked throughout, so that they can really focus in those sessions on the things that they need to focus on. So basically, we see this device complementing psychology, helping the psychologist to deliver the best possible mode of care, but also being able to space out their visits so that they can see more people and alleviate that supply bottleneck. Excellent. Okay. I can definitely see how your academic research background plays into the creation of these devices. What is the research that you've done to understand and confirm this problem space with psychologists and with patients? Right. So I'm working quite closely with the Black Dog Institute, and there's two sides of that. One is the more academic research in terms of trying to map out exactly how we can disrupt particular brain patterns to support this journey back to a good state of mental health. But the other is just trying to understand in a more practical sense, psychologists' workflows and how we can support those. So that's really been a process of conducting interviews. So going out and talking to not just psychologists, talking to everybody in the mental health space, because one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that there's a lot of people that play a role in mental health. 
from their psychologists, but also social workers, occupational therapists, and they all play a very complementary role uh, alongside psychiatrists and GPs. So it's really getting out and trying to speak to all of these people and understand what kind of journeys and pathways different patients go down to really hone in on where this device could have the most impact and how it could reach those patients and how it could help these overall systemic workflow issues. Okay, let's let's dive into that a little bit more. Let's imagine you have created this device, it works, and it is in a psychologist's practice. What would the psychologist experience and the patient experience be like how would you anticipate the psychologist making a recommendation to a patient that, hey, take this device home with you? And how would you envision the patient using that device at home? Okay, so I think the first thing would be it's based on the initial assessments. So when a patient first comes into a psychology clinic, the first sessions are really trying to understand that particular patient, their background and the things that they're dealing with. And that is where the, a psychologist will identify the patients for whom the depression is more driven by these cognitive factors. Maybe just to expand on that a little bit, that depression is a very multifaceted illness. There's a lot of different symptoms and a lot of different factors that play into it. So for some people, it will be more driven by a particular set of personal circumstances or the environment that they're in at a point of time. For others, it will be more driven by these more cognitive thinking habits. Okay, And they're all present in some aspect, but the first session with a psychologist, they dig into that to try to understand which things to prioritize and focus on. So those patients for whom these thinking habits are the primary issue, they would then be offered, well, we have these devices. Would you like to take this home with you? We recommend using it for half an hour each day. You log into the app, and I guess this is now explaining the patient experience. So that patient would take that home, and each day they'd log into the app, put the headset on, and it would guide them through a series of these CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy exercises, whilst they have this device on. And what this device does is basically track the, like I say, the thinking habits that are linked to health and the thinking habits that are linked to depression. And it's quite simple. It really just disrupts the person. So it plays an interrupting noise whenever those unhealthy thinking habits are detected. The idea is that it's constantly monitoring for those and constantly giving them a gentle nudge to say, this is the pattern that we want to avoid. They're aware of this and they know that they're maybe playing a game. They're being coached in how to get those brain patterns back towards that, that healthier equilibrium. The other thing to say is that when they come back, the psychologist would see immediately on a dashboard the kind of readouts of that person's progress over each day and that includes both the behavioral markers in terms of those exercises that they've been doing each day alongside actual physiological markers so how much these thought patterns are being detected on a day-to-day -day basis the idea there is that they can immediately see the assessment readout track how this patient's been progressing over the course since their last visit and immediately dive into the issues that matter 
Now, my experience with visiting psychologists in the past, and you briefly alluded to how psychologists operate earlier in our discussion, this seems like quite a lot of behavioral change for both the psychologists and patients. What do you think might ease this transition from the current operating model to the future that Resonate might have in mind? There's probably two big things there. The first one is that it's making life easier for both the psychologist and for the patient. For the patient, when I say making life easier, what we hope to prove through clinical trials is that this helps people get back on their feet faster. The average length of time that it takes to recover from depression is nine and a half months. Okay, that's a long time to just be struggling on your own. So if you offer a course of therapy that can drastically shorten, that's going to be much more valuable to a patient and justify that additional effort of using this each day. For the psychologist, it makes their life easier in terms of what they need to focus on and the information that they have available for the patient. But then there's a second thing, which is, I think, a more reliable way to scale these kind of things, and that's basically a new revenue stream. So the fact that the psychologists have never been able to scale their business model, what this offers them is something where they can actually see more clients and focus on the things that matter, where traditionally the only way that they could scale was to work longer hours or charge higher fees. So that's where we think that will really help to justify that change in behavior. And just touching on that last response about having to work longer hours or charging higher fees, psychologist practices themselves, they tend to be pretty small. They're usually privately run operations with five, maybe at most 10 practicing psychologists. And in our early discussions, in your own words, you said psychology is a cottage industry. So how do you plan on reaching out to such a fragmented market in order to distribute your solution? Yeah, good question. Good question. So it's probably worth saying that psychology has been a cottage industry, but at the moment it is moving towards larger and larger group practices. So there's some interesting trends where one is that people are moving into these larger practices. The other is the emergence of online platforms, especially since the pandemic normalized interacting with people over Zoom. There's a whole lot of psychologists that have realized that they don't even need to be affiliated with a clinic. They can be affiliated with an online platform. And when you go to these online platforms, there are hundreds of psychologists that are available on there. I think it's somewhere where the industry is changing. There is still a lot of these individual solo practices. For me, this comes into a, I guess, the go-to-market where early on I would probably focus more on the larger players in order to achieve scale. Once you are established, it becomes a lot easier to reach out to the smaller players. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So thank you so much for talking us through Nate and the Resonate Solution. Now I'd love to hear about your vision for the future of Resonate itself. At this point in time, I'm very curious, what do you think your next steps are? Yeah, so immediate focus is on product development. 
What we haven't said is the stage that Resonate is currently at, it's still a very early stage company. There's a lot of research behind this, but we haven't actually built the device. So we've established partnerships with the Black Dog Institute to test the device, but we haven't finished the build. So that's really priority number one, two, and three, is to now build the thing that all this research is pointing towards. So that would be the immediate next steps. There's then, in parallel, the standard startup activities of fundraising to try to justify. It's one thing to build a device for an early proof of concept, but then that's very different to having something that you can actually take out to the market. Going along that path, especially in a regulated industry such as the medical device industry, requires a lot of capital. Accessing capital requires evidence. There's sort of this backwards and forwards pathway that we need to go down of gathering preliminary evidence to justify some fundraising to develop the next stage in that development. Okay. So you mentioned you're already working with the Black Dog Institute, but being at the early stage that you are at, there's going to be a whole bunch of other partnerships that you might have to build or rely on. So I'm wondering, do you have any dream organizations that you'd like to buddy up with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's quite a few, I guess. So the Black Dog Institute, they've been a great partner because they do research, but they also do clinical practice. And I think that's what makes them so useful. As I look forward, what I probably need most is building out commercial partnerships. Because for something like this, you can do it on your own but you can do it a lot faster if you do it with with others. So it's something where I think there's existing companies in the medical device space. I don't actually want to specify exactly who, but companies that I could work with that could drastically shorten that pathway because they've done it, not with the exact device that I'm working towards, but with related technologies where they've solved a whole bunch of these quite complex problems it doesn't make sense for me to try and reinvent the wheel. So that is where I'd be looking, uh, kind of prioritizing building those partnerships. Mm -hmm. Okay. And thinking about all of this future expansion and the kinds of partnerships that you'd have to build, would you see any value in taking on somebody else on board at Resonate as well? Or are you fairly confident that this is something that you can push on with on your own? Oh, no, absolutely looking to build a team. No no question about that. Yeah, I think in this space, you can't really get far on your own except in proving out an idea. So I think when I look at the skills that I need to build within the team, I am looking for people, priority number one, with commercial and business building experience. There's that side of things. I'd like to get psychologists into the team people who have worked in clinical practice and who know from actual experience what exactly the issues are that we need to tap into and address. And then on the third side, there's the kind of the product engineering, software development side of things. I guess the natural thing at this stage is that more than anything, you need people who are generalists who can juggle the many different hats that you need to wear in a startup but still covering those major domains that are crucial for the success of our business. 
Well, if there's anybody listening into this who identifies with this problem, it resonates with you, pun intended, then by all means, please reach out to Cameron. We'll get your contact information towards the end of the show. Okay, so looking towards the far future, not just the immediate future, if everything goes right for yourself and for Resonate, what do you think the world looks like? Right. So this is the aspirational goal that I would like to get to in 10, 15 years. Look, what I'd like to prove out, we've talked a lot about depression and mental health, and it's really, I see that as the test bed for demonstrating what we can do when we can actually listen into brainwaves and support them, resonate with particular patterns and accentuate and inhibit different other patterns. Now, the scope for what you could then do with that is quite vast. So I could see these Resonate devices really starting up a whole industry for wearable headsets that actively react to your brainwave patterns for a range of different things. Mental health is really my focus, but there's potential applications in everything ranging from devices that help you support concentration, that support productivity, that support workplace health and safety where you have people monitoring events. There's really a whole large scope of things that these could potentially be used for. If everything goes right, 10 to 15 years, these headsets will be as ubiquitous as Apple Watches that we use to track our heart rates. Well, it remains to be seen if we can get there. But in order for that vision of the world to pan out, what do you think you personally need to do to get yourself and to get Resonate there? Right now, I think I need to do it all. Um, (laughs) There's proving that this works in one application. Startup founders like to talk about their 15-year vision, but... Like you say, who really knows what the world's going to look like in 15 years? What matters more is what you can prove in one year. Um, And that requires, rather than this kind of broad aspirational goal, a kind of razor-sharp focus. So for us, that is proving that this is a way to, to support people who have mild to moderate depression, to enable them to treat their illness in their own homes, to break these cognitive habits that are linked to the illness. If we can prove that, then we'll be well on the way, I think. Fantastic. Cameron, I couldn't think of a better way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to check in after your one-year mark to see whether or not you've managed to prove that and get you back on the show then. How does that sound? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks a lot, Sean. I'd love to come back and see how we've gone. It's going to be a busy year, but absolutely, let's check in at the end. Well, you never know. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media handles, any contact info for anybody who might like to reach out to you. Yeah, please. Anybody who does want to get in touch, shoot me an email, cam at resonate.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Cameron, it was a pleasure. Thank you once again. And that's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm or DM me on Twitter at sean underscore AHD. Otherwise, stay tuned, subscribe, and learn what it's like before the success when what we've got is Promise.